She just said, we fucking killed this, bro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, y'all. It's Rhiannon. Today, we are releasing a special episode of 5 to 4, an episode that will be part of a series I'm doing about social justice lawyering and the work of progressive and leftist lawyers. We talk so much on the show about the evil being done in the law, and I want to talk about good work for a change. I want listeners to hear about the lawyers on the front lines in legal battles to protect the most vulnerable, to make the law work for all of us, and to build a just future. This episode is about public defenders and gun control. Last year, the Supreme Court heard New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, a case about whether New York's gun licensing laws violated the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. While gun control advocates and many liberals said that the restrictions on gun ownership in New York were necessary to prevent gun violence, a group of public defenders filed a brief in the case, arguing that the licensing regime should be struck down, not just because it violated the Second Amendment, but because it was also selectively and disproportionately enforced against their clients, poor black and brown people in New York City. In the end, the Supreme Court did strike down the gun licensing laws, and the public defenders took some criticism for their support of the ideologically conservative holding. Last month, I spoke to three of these public defenders about the brief and why they wrote it, about what public safety really means in a society addicted to incarceration, and what's happened for their clients since the licensing laws were struck down. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court decisions that suck shit. I'm Rhiannon, and I'm here without Peter or Michael today because this is a very special episode. And I said, sorry, no boys allowed. Just kidding. Some boys are here. This special episode is hopefully the start of a mini series of sorts where I plan on talking to attorneys who are doing new and innovative work to advance progressive or leftist values in the law. I want to hear from across different areas of the law. I want to be talking to people about what it means to be a leftist lawyer. What is movement lawyering? What is abolitionist lawyering? What arguments are we making to protect the environment, to get people out of jail, to build power in the labor movement, to advance tenants' rights and access to housing, et cetera, et cetera. So to kick it off, I am really thrilled to be chatting with three attorneys from the Bronx Defenders today. The Bronx Defenders is the public defender office in the Bronx in New York City. We will be talking today about NYSERPA v. Bruin, the case from last term where the Supreme Court, in a majority opinion written by Clarence Thomas, struck down New York's gun licensing regime because they said it violated the Second Amendment. But more specifically, we'll be talking about the amicus brief that these attorneys wrote and filed in the case, arguing that the so-called gun control laws should be struck down because it was harming their clients, who are poor black and brown people in New York City. I think we should just jump in. So let's have the three of you introduce yourselves. Tell us your name, maybe how long you've been a public defender, anything else about yourself you'd like to share. Amy, you want to start? Sure. My name is Amy Carlisle. I'm a senior attorney in the legal department of the criminal defense practice at the Bronx Defenders. I've been a public defender for almost seven years. Gorgeous. I'm Christopher Smith. I am an attorney in the early defense practice. That's where you can call our hotline and get help if you need it. And I believe I'm starting my sixth year. Is that right? 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Did you guys I mean, graduate I'm, I'm together? Right. <laughs> no, we, we started together. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Just lose track after yeah. you get to be mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Michael Thomas. I'm also an attorney in the early defense practice and one of the team leaders. I've been practicing for a little over five years. Great. Really, really excited to have you guys. Thank you so much for making this happen. I think this is just really interesting what you guys have done with this brief. And I'm thrilled to talk about it because I I think our listeners will really, really enjoy hearing about this. So let's just start big picture with like just a reminder of some vocabulary, right? Not all of our listeners are lawyers or law students. So could one of you tell us what is an amicus brief? What does it do? Uh, An amicus brief is basically another word for a friend of the court brief. It's something that can happen in all kinds of cases. Individuals, organizations can all just submit a brief, which is a legal document to the court, kind of explaining their perspective. Honestly, they come in all flavors. There are some that are very creative, (laughs) like not a lot of legal argument, and some like ours that have a ton of legal argument and very persuasive and we think strong writing. And before we get into your argument in this brief, can you tell us kind of like what was the state of the law before the court struck it down? Like what was the gun control law that was at issue here? So the way it was set up, New York had a May issue licensing setup, which meant that for folks who wanted to get a concealed carry license, um, they would have to apply and there was no actual requirement that they actually receive the license. Um, It was ultimately up to the NYPD. Right. It's completely discretionary, right? You couldn't like check off boxes like I qualify with X, Y, Z. It was still completely discretionary whether or not you got that license or not. Right. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And most of the people who are able to get it were either former law enforcement judges or like very wealthy celebrities like Donald Trump. And disproportionately lived in areas like Staten Island or Riverdale. Right. Definitely not in the Bronx. Yeah. Getting one of these licenses. So... I've pulled some quotes from not just the brief, but also you have a wonderful op-ed in the Washington Post that you authored. I was also looking at a short article that was on SCOTUS blog that just kind of explains your argument. So just putting this up top, quote, as public defenders in New York City who represent people charged with illegal gun possession, people who, according to the New York City Police Department's own data, are almost invariably black and brown, We see the majority's decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin as an important step to ending mass incarceration. That's why we joined other public defenders in filing an amicus brief in this case, asking the court to abandon its ivory tower and consider the law's impact on those people who bear the brunt of New York's gun laws, our clients. So for people who haven't read your brief, can you explain what your argument was? Yeah, and... Speaking for myself here, there were a lot of creative minds, I think. But generally, the way I see it is that gun possession and gun cases mean something totally different when you step foot inside the Bronx. Um, And I think it was just really important for people to see that when you're saying we want sensible gun laws. It sounds very different when you're saying it from Scarsdale than when you're saying it from Grand Concourse, you know? I don't know the difference between those places. What (laughs) does that mean? (laughs) Oh, well, Scarsdale was... Like a ritzy neighborhood in Westchester. Okay. Tends to be majority white. And I just use that as a placeholder because 
you do have people that proclaim to be well self-identifying as liberal. You know, they will put the little black square on the Instagram. They will say, hmm. I'm social justice and stuff, you know. But at the same time, advocate for things that they really don't know what they're pushing for, which is mass incarceration. Yeah. 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 And I would say I think that was our main goal in writing the brief was to take this, like you said, out of the ivory tower. I feel like so much legal argument is all about hypotheticals and not talking about real people in their lives. We wanted the Supreme Court in its decision to acknowledge and hear the stories of our clients, like even for the petitioners. Right. It was very much an abstract concept at the end of the day when they were denied their license. As far as we know, they didn't actually exercise their right to carry. In contrast, our clients, their right to possess a firearm for self-defense is so significant that many of them are violating the law because that right is so important to them. And we wanted to make sure that the Supreme Court had to really reckon with the reality of what implementation of the decisions meant to individual people. And again, I think another goal of ours was to just open minds and hearts and get people who, again, identify as leftists, liberals, racial justice advocates, you know, so-called civil rights organizations and get them to really grapple with the reality of how do you protect people and how do you have a system that harms people in the name of public safety? Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into kind of these conceptions of public safety, but also I want to hear about your clients. Right. And the and the stories that came to y'all and came into this brief from the SCOTUS blog article. You say, quote, when Jose was 22 years old, a stranger slashed his 16 year old brother across the face on the way home from school. One year later, police stopped and frisked Jose on the street after they claimed to smell marijuana and see Jose move, quote, furtively. They didn't find any marijuana, but they did find a pistol. When the police arrested Jose, he protested. He told them what happened to his brother, that he did not intend to harm anyone, and that he had a Second Amendment right to protect himself and his family. Nonetheless, New York prosecutors charged Jose with second-degree criminal possession of a weapon, a violent felony that applies to virtually all simple firearm possession cases in New York, both outside and inside the home. Faced with a a three-and-a-half-year mandatory minimum prison sentence, Jose pled to a lesser charge. His sentence was one year on Rikers Island, a good deal for simple firearm possession in New York City. For exercising a constitutional right, Jose is now a so-called violent felon. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, these stories? What does it mean to get arrested in New York for illegal gun possession? What does it mean to not have enough money to pay for your bail that was set and you go to Rikers Island. What does that what does yeah. that mean for the people that you represent? So, you know, there are a few cases when you're starting out as a public defender, when you start moving into felonies. Once you start talking about gun cases, you go into that interview booth telling the client, okay, bail is probably going to get set. Who can I get to come to court? for you. Right, right. right. Because the judge is going to set an amount that you have to pay to get out of jail. Exactly. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the toughest conversations is that client who doesn't have anyone who's able to post that amount. Right. You've got people who are just either they don't have their family members numbers memorized by heart or people who just don't have it. And they have to, you know, come to terms with the fact that they're probably going to Rikers one of the most dangerous jails, period. Yeah, um, in the country. In the country. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be there for a really long time, right? Um, 
there have been numbers and numbers of stories that have come out about folks who have been left in intake for really long periods of time, folks who are left in their own fecal matter for periods of time, not being able to get access to cleanliness. Um, you know, I think we all have stories of clients who have just been in there and dealt with making a guard upset. And now that person has complete control of their life, right? right. Yeah. Um, people who are left in random cells for hours and hours and hours on end um, with absolutely no recourse. It's a miserable, miserable place. I can't even imagine what it is that my clients go through, even hearing all of the stuff that they go through. Yeah. It's torture, right? I mean, that is the knee-jerk response to being arrested with an unlicensed firearm, yeah. right? That's the automatic response. I don't think I can remember a case where the, a DA has been able to ask for bail on a gun case and has chosen not to ask for right. bail. They're going to do it right? every time. They're going to do it cases. every single yeah. time. Yeah. And if I could just add in a bigger sense, we do represent what's been labeled the poorest congressional district in the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, when judges set cash bail, I think... You know, a lot of them know what they're doing, but if you're setting, let's say, $3,000 cash bail, where that's just where you have to pay up front to get out, that means something very different in the South Bronx than it does even in a place, let's say, in, in, in Texas, it's not even a rich, fancy place. The reality is that for most people in the Bronx, owning a home is you know, something more of a dream than a reality, unfortunately. And it's not like, you know, they could just take grandma's house that she's been paying the mortgage on for, you know, X amount of years and put that equity up, right? Right. Most of the times we're talking about families that are living check to check. And, you know, if you're in Rikers, you can't show up to work the next day. And uh, incarceration does contribute to the cycle of poverty that we see, you know, so often. For sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just emphasize, too, that we're talking about pre-trial incarceration. So right. these are yeah. people who are innocent under the law and are literally being tortured because they got arrested. Um, Michael was talking about the reality of Rikers Island. Last summer, there were photos that were released from Rikers Island showing people, like Michael said, having zero access to hygiene, medical treatment. And I think just a week or two ago, Again, the same photos came out showing right. that the condition is the same, right. mm -hmm. even though Rikers has had lawsuits, federal monitoring, all of that stuff. And I was talking to one of my clients recently uh, who I represented on a gun case. And he just said, I was able to get the case dismissed. But he told me, you know, those 12 months that he spent at Rikers Island changed him and he will oh, never yeah. be the same. You don't get that back. Right. Do not get it back. Mm -hmm. Normal. And he told me he's in his own words, like crazy at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. PTSD, nightmares. We're literally torturing people mm -hmm. who have done nothing other than allegedly possess a firearm without a license. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I got to say, as a public defender in Texas, most of my clients are held on, on bail that is less than $20,000. The Harris County Jail might be given Rikers a, a run for its money. Right. Harris County, which is Houston, I don't practice there. I practice in Austin. But the Harris County Jail, the building itself, it looks like it has windows on the outside. There are oh, windows wow. painted on. <laughs> wow. The people on the inside That's don't disgusting. have windows. Wow. Yeah. So when we when we talk about this being torture, yeah. we're talking about months right. of of torture that our clients, that people are enduring, having to survive, sometimes do not survive, literally, 
because of misapplication of laws, disproportionate application of laws, and for simple things like gun possession, right, without ever having hurt somebody. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't recently the Harris County Jail surpass Rikers for the most overcrowded? I've heard stuff like that. Also, in terms of death toll, um, it's getting up there, too. Yeah. Yeah. You were going to say something? Yeah, Yeah. I was going to say the fact that they have windows painted on the outside, Mm -hmm. but not actual windows on the inside, I feel like just captures Mm -hmm. the criminal punishment system so well Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's like you want to make everything look pretty from the outside, right? And that's why at the everyone couches everything in terms of public safety and everything like that mm-hmm. um while on the inside it's something that the people on the outside really can't even begin to comprehend exactly yeah really good way to put it so getting back to the brief getting back to sort of clients who are specifically charged with gun possession offenses what made you realize you needed to write the brief why write it who are you thinking about who are you advocating for whose voice and experience is explained in this filing. My first memory of all this was my trip to Austin uh, and how I felt at the end of that trip and immediately after. I'm not a gun person uh, in the slightest. This trip we're talking about like a year and a half ago. That was the first time I ever shot a gun, right? Mm -hmm. Gun culture was something totally different and honestly was a bit of a shock to me down there, right? Not only the availability and the selection of guns, But, you know, the amount of bumper stickers saying, come and take it or something like that. And what I left Texas with was the idea that not only are guns legal down here, they're encouraged, right? And at the same time, I'm getting emails from DAs basically rejecting my, what I think, very reasonable offers on gun cases. Mm -hmm. Something like a teenager, you know, like if he agrees, you know, to do this program and, you know, we monitor him being employed and going to school for like a year or something like that. You right, know, right. Uh, can we get him something that does not include <laughs> jail? That's not going to ruin his life, not going to send him to Rikers. And the answer was no. And of course, you know, now and even at the time, that was routine, right? I would go to c- certain people with my anger at this and they would say, yeah, that's what it is now. That's normal. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're asking for a non-jail offer on a gun case that's unheard of nowadays. And, you know, that didn't make me feel better. That just enraged me that much more. Yeah. So how I usually do in the office, I start talking smack. And then I said, you know, we need to do something. Like, what can we do about this, you know, case that's going on at the time, et cetera. Long behold, you know, there was another former coworker that was also complaining about this, trying to find out what he can do. And, you know, word got around. Eventually, you know, we agreed that we're going to try to do this amicus. I emailed pretty much like half the office um, (laughs) and said, you know, we need to do something about this, you know. And um, it was really, you know, just to show the discrepancy and the ugliness, like in the biggest stage we possibly can. Right. At least in terms of the law. And we didn't hold back. And the stories pretty much told themselves. As public defenders, we see a lot of human suffering watching people go to prison for years and being separated from their communities and their families and watching people break down. I don't see how you can be a human being and not have empathy for that. And I think it's even more problematic when we contrast that with states like Texas, right, where, again, in pretty much half the country, it's not even a crime to have a gun without a license. And nobody's going to prison, let alone facing a three and a half year mandatory minimum for something that 
you can do very easily in some parts of the country. But what was the reaction inside your office when you brought up the idea to write the brief? How do people... This is a really nuanced kind of argument that you're making. So how did it feel from other attorneys? I mean, look, if you're in that courthouse, especially, you know, after what I call the post-pandemic propaganda parade (laughs) that (laughs) started, right? Like, you know how messed up these gun cases are. Like, Michael is not exaggerating. Like, you pick up a gun case, we're talking incarceration from day one. Mm -hmm. It's not fair. The majority of the people of our office, I think, are from out of state. So they probably come from a place that, you know, has different gun laws. I've dealt with DAs that are from a state where gun laws are encouraged. And I'm explaining this to them. It's like, bro, you go home. You know, like, you're doing this shit tomorrow. You know, you okay. remember, remember I said we talk about cases that suck shit. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> the first sentence of this, <laughs> you're good. <laughs> oh, apologize to my mom that must be listening. <laughs> Pretty much, if you approach this from an objective lens, if you are dealing with criminal cases in the Bronx, you know the deal. Yeah. So I would say both of y'all help me with the nuance, but maybe the biggest camp was hell yeah, let's do something about this about damn time. Yeah. Um, the second smallest camp was like, sounds like a good idea. I think this will go great. Please don't like blow anything up. <laughs> There's going to be a diversity of opinions in office so large. And I, I think it spanned the, the spectrum. Yeah. yeah. I want to turn and talk about public safety a little bit, because I think what's most interesting to me about the brief is this proposition that gun control laws are supposed to be in the name of public safety. And the stories you're telling in the brief are of people who are profoundly unsafe because of these laws and their application, right? So I'm going to read a quote again from some of your writing, and then, and then Michael, I'll, I'll ask you a question. You say, quote, New York system runs in the name of safety, but simply making firearm possession unlawful is not itself safe. The license requirement damages real people forever. Our clients are psychologically traumatized and physically threatened by police invading their homes, executing search warrants. They are caged pretrial at Rikers in what is now acknowledged to be a humanitarian crisis. They lose their jobs, children, and immigration status, risking increased ICE enforcement. They are sent to prison. And they are forever branded as criminals, or worse, violent felons. The victims of this system include Victor Mercado, whom police arrested this summer after they allegedly found a handgun in his car. Unable to pay the $100,000 bail that a Bronx judge set, Mercado contracted COVID-19 at Rikers. Last week, he died. So, Michael, I just maybe want to start with you. So gun control advocates, this is in my opinion, that they might have kind of like the upper hand on the narrative right now, that like individual restriction of gun ownership and gun possession, that's how we combat gun violence. But in y'all's view, why does this not actually work on the ground to promote, quote unquote, safety? Yeah. So what we end up with, and I think Chris sort of not coined this term, but was the first person in the group to refer to it as this, um, is that we are addicted to mass incarceration, right? Um, So if there is a problem, we try to incarcerate our way out of it, right? Like, you can name almost anything that pops up and the solution will be, let's make this illegal. Let's make that illegal. Let's make this illegal. Mm -hmm. Let's make that illegal. And I feel like probably somewhere around law school. So maybe like 2016 or 2015, like we started 
recognizing, oh, wow, like mass incarceration is really not something that we should be encouraging Mm -hmm. because it funnels people through the system and it destroys lives. And I think that some folks on the left started to acknowledge that back then, but not fully flush that thought out. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, And I think that's kind of what we're trying to do now is to sort of show like this is a clear, concrete way that we can have an impact on mass incarceration through not using incarceration as a knee-jerk reaction, right? right? right. Chris refers to it as an addiction, right? Because that really is all that we do is just go back and try to incarcerate our way out of the problem when we're creating so many more problems, right? Right. Incarceration does not make people safe. It doesn't, right? right? Not the community and not the people who are incarcerated. Yeah. 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 Like um, we tried to sort of cover examples of different ways, right? People lose their jobs, people lose their children. I think one of the areas that we didn't get a chance to fully, fully touch on in the brief is immigration, Mm -hmm. right? You know, there was some stuff that we really wanted to get in, but couldn't get it in in the amount of time. But there are people who end up getting mandatorily detained Mm -hmm. because once upon a time they were arrested for a gun. Right. Right. Detained by like ICE, immigration enforcement. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So it's just like, that's, the the reality of that and that does not make us safe right and i think mm-hmm. that's kind of the premise that where we start from um is that mass incarceration does not make us safe um and it yeah. destroys lives and causes more problems than it yeah. helps in my experience my cases fall into two camps either it's all bs and it didn't happen or some version of it did happen and once you start to explore the brute causes of it it's um 99.999% of the times fall under some version of these three categories. Sometimes all three, mental health related, addiction related, or poverty related. Mm-hmm. If you throw somebody in Rikers <laughs> for the duration of their case for three years or throw them upstate, what part of that trifecta is being addressed? Exactly. What part of that trifecta is being made worse? <laughs> in my experience, all three of those are being made worse. So then the genius plan of this carceral system is to make all three of those worse and just throw them right back in. It's like, all right, do better this time. Right. Yeah. It's right. A joke. It makes no sense. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wrote the brief too, is because I feel like in some ways we know that as a society, it's not okay that this isn't the right solution, but because this is a solution that only really impacts low-income Black and brown people, it's acceptable to us, right? And we like white people don't have the same experiences in the criminal legal system as the majority of our clients. And so some people say, you know, the system is broken, wait a little bit longer, mm-hmm. we can fix it. And other people say, you know, the system is working as intended, right? It's not really about public safety. It's about controlling marginalized people and ensuring that they can't escape the cycle of poverty, right? Right. Turning to kind of responses, reactions to the brief, what is y'all's response to, you know, mostly actually liberal, people who consider themselves liberal, right? Liberal critics who say that, you know, all you did with this brief was give conservatives give Clarence Thomas, who who wrote the majority opinion, you gave them arguments, right, which he was predictably going to use in bad faith, basically. You know, Ellie Mistel last year, you know, Ellie Mistel is uh, the I think he's the justice correspondent for the nation, um, you know, outspoken about about 
um, what's happening in the judiciary. He came on our show uh, over a year ago, criticized this brief kind of on on those grounds, right, that you're saying these laws are applied in racist ways and have racist impact. But that's just giving Clarence Thomas sort of more fodder for his ultimately conservative argument, right, in favor of the Second Amendment. What do y'all say to that? Do you have a response? Can I go really quickly? <laughs> yeah, I can see. I was like, Amy I just want to say, like, Amy one Amy thing, lawyer to lawyer, right? Because there's a lot of civil rights people, you know, civil whatever, liberties people, not naming names. But what's interesting to me is that there's some people and organizations that just don't recognize the law as it stands. There are some organizations that still have on their website that they don't believe that the Second Amendment is an individualized right. Like that battle has been crossed a decade ago. And so it's interesting to me that so-called legal experts are not acknowledging the actual reality of the precedent, right? That's just coming out the gate like what, like, We were battling with the reality of the law, and they're not even acknowledging that Mm -hmm. some of these bridges have already been crossed, and we're building on the precedent in a way to help our clients. I obviously have more thoughts about, Mm -hmm. you know, being a so-called racial justice organization and saying, okay, it's okay for these Black people to go to prison, right? It's I'm going to call myself an abolitionist, Mm -hmm. but this is not a bridge that I want to cross or this this is a line that I'm not going to go for. When again, at the end of the day, we're talking about people who have never or aren't charged with using a firearm, yeah. I don't... I'm going to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think we do multiple rounds on this one. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think we That might have been the last question she needed I think, oh, wait, I'll just say, too, one thing that I thought was funny is that there were a lot of memes and things going around on Twitter about how do you count to 10, right? And how some of these organizations <laughs> forgot that two is part of that counting because they act like the only rights that matter in the Bill of Rights are everything except the Second Amendment. At the end of the day, the Second Amendment is part of our Constitution. Like, I don't see how you can call yourself a civil liberties organization and not accept that reality. You can disagree with it and we can change the Constitution if we want to, but none of us here believe that we should have a constitution that says that only some people get to exercise these rights. Right. Constitution for me, not mm-hmm. for thee. Exactly. Right. And that black people can't be trusted to exercise their rights in the same way as other people. We yeah. have a fundamental oppositional viewpoint on that issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I think ultimately the right thing to say is the right thing to say, regardless of whatever someone else is going to try to make fit. Right. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to for me is that it is messed up that 96% of the people who are arrested for guns are black and it very intentional that it is that way, right? Right. In New York City. That In is. New York City, yeah. right? That is messed up and we will always fight against that, right? We have clients who are being denied a right that other folks would clearly have. And that's what we're advocating for. You know, we are public defenders. And, you know, when you sort of take a step back and you think of like conflicts of interest, right? The moment we start to say, I'm not going to advocate on behalf of my client because of some outside source, that's the moment that we should probably take arrest and reconsider why we're doing the work that we're doing, because that to me is a clear conflict, right? If you're not able to advocate for someone because you think, oh, well, this might get used in a certain way. No, that's not how we see it. 
it was the right thing to say on behalf of our clients. Um, and we would say it again a million times over. Period. Yeah. yeah. I had a lot of different feelings, you know, uh, mixed feelings. I knew that they were coming. You know, I, I don't mess around in the internet too much because I know <laughs> sometimes people say stupid things and they <laughs> could occupy too much mental space. But, you know, I, I knew that was coming for some particular comments people in the organization part of me felt used in a sense it's like mm. okay so when it's cool to say black lives matter <laughs> you're, you're out there you know like you're okay to take the selfie out in the protest and uh, you know put abolitionists in your bio but when we're talking mm -hmm. about what mass incarceration means in the year of 2020 2022 now all of a sudden you want to take a step back. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, we're going too hard. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're the wild out of control ones, right? Yeah. And, you know, in many aspects of my identity, I think I straddle two worlds. But as in my professional capacity, oftentimes, especially when I'm in the court, it's like on one hand, I'm this lawyer in this, you know, public defense organization that has whatever, X, Y, and Z. But on the other hand, you know, I am the first member of my family to make it to this part of my life, right? You know, I did deal with aspects of poverty, institutional racism, racist policing. So a lot of times I do find myself, you know, like straddled between those two worlds. And when you have a lot of, you know, overly privileged people that all they do is like walk in, you know, to their MSNBC studio. <laughs> <laughs> Hypothetically. Say it. <laughs> and, you know. But wait, they, they have been asking me to be on MSNBC recently, so we're okay with that. Okay? We're okay still with a that. public defender. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not knocking that. Like, but by all means, you know, like, let's be our ancestors' wildest dreams, you know. But I don't like when people that cannot relate to what we're talking about, who we represent, who I am and who I was, right? For you to say, no, don't advocate this way, advocate that way. You know, I wish I could find a professional way of saying, shut up <laughs> and like learn before you talk. You know, some of these people that made these commentaries, like admitted attorneys that could also walk into the Bronx Supreme Court and pick up a case or two. They could do arraignment shifts, too, <laughs> as a member of the public, walk in to an arraignment shift and see the type of bail that is being set on these kinds of cases. Right. And, you know, when you have a knee jerk reaction because you're saying to yourself, well, this is my group of politics. This is what I declare to be my set of policies. And anything that goes against that, I'm incapable of dealing with that critically. It makes me question where you're coming from. If you're doing this for clout or if you're doing this because you really do want to see freedom for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I do think that today's incentives kind of push people to, you know, say what would make them fit in rather than what's right. It's like you have to have a take. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you hear something. I need to have an opinion about it immediately. Mm -hmm. But there's no thought. There's no yeah. contextualization. Right? right. There's no human narrative that you're paying attention to. Right. Yeah. It's a problem on the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> and outside of the Internet, too. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and I, I just ask for more good faith conversation. Like, whatever. OK, technically, you know. This is where I line politically. Never have voted for Republican, never will, right? Probably. <laughs> but <laughs> don't tell me, you know, oh, because somebody else that you don't like may use this, then I should keep my mouth shut? Yeah. No. Like, why don't you take an objective, credible stance, right? And then we'll talk about it, <laughs> you know? Right. And where the truth lands, the truth lands, right? Yeah. And, you know, ultimately what they're saying that they don't like about our argument is real life stories, right? 
you know, uh, we're not making it up. This yeah. is the real life for people that are being charged with crimes. So uh, I just want to flag for listeners, you know, on five to four, we talk pretty frequently about legal realism. This idea that like when you interpret the law, you should be looking at on the ground impact people who are affected by laws, people who are left out. Right. And that judges interpreting the law should be taking into account. Right. Social values. And again, the most impacted people in these legal questions. So I just wanted to flag that, like, what we're talking about here is a sort of legal realism. I would say, too, one thing that for me was very personally disheartening was that so many people on the so-called left agreed with us, right? Right. They said, yeah, this is super racist. Yeah, this is super classist. And instead of joining with us, they said, you know, not now. You need to wait. We can fix the racism in the criminal legal system in New York by... Just trusting the cops a little bit more and, you know, file an equal protection claim. And that's the way that you're supposed to litigate this. And it's like, no, like we have enough data Mm -hmm. to recognize that it needs to end now. And I don't see why anyone, particularly people like Chris is saying, who aren't even in the positions of our clients, who've never been in criminal or Supreme Court. Why do they get to tell our clients to wait? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for us, too, like we recognize that, you know, the master's tools aren't going to undo the master's house. Right. Mm -hmm. But it was people on the left who said, no, like you can trust a system that has centuries of history behind it showing that it's racist. Trust it to fix itself now that mm-hmm. we've actually like looked at the data and called it out. And we just disagreed. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Or now that it's in the area of gun violence, which all of a sudden, right, is sort of different or like held on this pedestal mm-hmm. versus when you contrast it with, say, state violence enacted on our clients. Right. As a result of these laws. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think it's also the fact that it's so hard to move away from that, I think, shows sort of lack of creativity because I think what people are ultimately mad at is that they won't be able to arrest people for possessing guns anymore. Right. There are a million different approaches that can be used. And if the approach has nothing to do with incarcerating people, People don't really want to hear anything about it. Right. And I think it just shows that we're not ready or certain people aren't ready to take that first step to imagining a world where mass incarceration is not the solution that we use for every single societal issue. Right. Right. Yeah. So the decision came down. The gun licensing regime in the state of New York was struck down as a violation of the Second Amendment. What was your reaction? For myself, I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. I think I both have an optimistic and a pessimistic view. Right before the SCOTUS decision came down, maybe like two weeks, I was speaking to somebody on the bench. and A judge? Uh, yes. Which, oh, you don't have to say, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I bad. was clarifying yeah, just, for listeners, yeah, but judge. if you don't want to say, yeah, <laughs> no, that's okay. I'll, I'll say a judge, but not okay. who. <laughs> And I asked him, like, hey, you know, what if the uh, law gets stricken down? What if we get something that, you know, we we can use, et cetera, going through a series of hypotheticals. And this person, this judge just says to me, don't don't worry. You you know, we we got ways. The Supreme Court is going to say what they have to say, and we'll say what we have to say. Yeah. And again, you know, like, I was not shocked by anything, but like, that's pretty much how law works, at least from my experience in the Bronx, right? We'll cram our heads finding all these great laws from these binding jurisdictions. And uh, in my experience, judges first determine 
what outcome they want. Yes. <laughs> and then they determine <laughs> which laws they're going to ignore and which ones they're going to prop up, you know, in, in order to make that work. Oh, you said the Court of Appeals said X, Y, and Z. But <laughs> this court in Alaska <laughs> said one, two, and three. I really like one, two, and three. <laughs> so there's a lot of that. Like, even if we got the perfect decision, you know, all of Bronx Defenders clients walk out tomorrow. <laughs> you know, of course, they were never going to write that, right? Right. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of hoops we had to jump through, right? And I do think that, generally speaking, typically I, I go to Amy for clarifications on <laughs> these things, but... I think generally speaking, they're still finding ways to keep the status quo as much yeah. as possible. Yeah. And the cement is still really wet on a lot of this, you know. And that's why I think, you know, we should be talking about this open and honestly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. While we still can. I want to get everybody's reactions, but just to kind of insert that in there, what's happened since the law was struck down? Did prosecutors dismiss charges for people already accused of illegal gun possession? Did people get off Rikers? Like, what happens now that supposedly, theoretically, well, not theoretically, factually, right? The mm. Supreme Court of the United States said this licensing regime was unconstitutional. I think realistically, the only change is that a new motion gets filed. Right. <laughs> That's literally the only change that I have seen, and at least on the ground, yeah. um, is that we'll file a motion saying that it requires the law to be dismissed, I had a judge react sarcastically mm -hmm. when I said, judge, I want to file this motion. You know, he went on this whole thing and, you know, that's the only change because what he's telling me is I'm never going to grant your motion in a million years. Yeah. So why even write it? Yeah. And that's the reaction that we get from judges, right? Mm -hmm. Judges will just sort of openly acknowledge that they have never granted a Bruin decision and, and never intend on granting one. Yeah. So I don't think very much has changed on the ground in terms of in the actual trial courtrooms. But like mm -hmm. Chris said, I think the cement is still wet and we will see kind of what happens long term. Um, but in the meantime, I think it's still on us to raise all those arguments yeah. because behind every air quote good mm -hmm. Supreme Court decision are a lot of losses, yeah. right? So regardless of whether the judges want to actually follow the law or not, I mean, it's still an issue that we will continue to raise and preserve and make sure that, you know, future courts can make a determination on in the future. So you said, like, a judge will say, I am never going to grant. Well, they might not say it explicitly, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but their demeanor, what they're recognizing, what they're communicating to you is, I am never going to grant a Bruin motion, right? I am not going to dismiss on this basis. But there was literally a Supreme Court decision about this. You know, I think lay people wouldn't really get that. Like, wait, the Supreme Court, that's the law of the land. Like, yeah. So just in reality, talk a little bit about what that means, what, yeah. how, that, how that happens. Yeah, I think going back to Chris's point, judges do what they want. They decide what they want to do and figure out the rationale afterwards. And what that means is that a judge is looking at a case, right? They look at one of our clients. They think our client is a bad person because they had a gun. There's levels and levels of racism behind that, right? And the judge says, I don't want to let this person go, right? Mm -hmm. I want to find a way to incarcerate this person, right? 
Um, so a judge will just completely ignore and sort of do legal gymnastics to get to the end result, which is we are not going to dismiss all of these cases, yeah. right? Um, and that's kind of like if you look to some of the sort of pushback um, and a lot of the arguments that come out, that's those are the things that judges are saying, right? Um, I had a judge say to me, oh, yeah, because your office wants everyone in the world to have guns running around on the subway. Like that was that judge's reaction to me saying that I wanted to file this motion. Right. Um, and I think that highlights this judge is not considering the legal arguments on the merits. This judge is jumping to, you know, I want to incarcerate people because I think incarceration solves public safety. Right. And whatever legal gymnastics that judge has to do, that judge will do. Yeah. And I'll say it like in another way is one of the holdings from Bruin, which we all know because we're the ones that are writing these motions, is that when a court analyzes a restriction on the Second Amendment, they have to apply that historical tradition test, right? And otherwise, the restriction is not constitutional. We all know that there's no historical analog of people becoming violent felons and doing three and a half to 15 years or life, sometimes depending on their record, yeah. for possessing a firearm without a license. So all of these cases should be getting dismissed if judges are actually following the law, right? And so I could see how people who aren't lawyers are like, well, if the Supreme Court says X, why do courts get to ignore that? Mm -hmm. And I think this goes back to Chris's point and Michael's point as well, is that you know, I believe that the system that we have is not a system about justice. It's not a system designed to promote safety or to do what's right. It's a system that has its roots, its origin, and presently is all about promoting white supremacy. And so anytime we have some kind of reform, anytime we have a step in the right direction, I believe that the system reverts itself and contorts itself to change the outcome in order to promote white supremacy because we've never actually had a real reconciliation about what our institutions mean in this country. Yeah. And so like Michael's saying is these judges know that they're not following the law and they don't care. And there's no punishment. There's no accountability right. Right. because the people that they're hurting are not people who have a ton of social or economic power. So right. and because the institutional value, like mm -hmm. you're saying, the value and principle of the institution itself is further incarceration, right? Mm -hmm. Is yeah. advancing the goals of white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. And like the irony is, right, is like particularly for these offenses, our clients are charged with basically not following the rules, right? This isn't like a moral wrong or whatever. You right. can get very philosophical about that stuff. They're being punished criminally for not following the rules. And at the same time, the judges are also not following the rules. They're right. not following the precedent and mm -hmm. all these fancy things that we learn about in law school. Or Supreme Court decisions. Yeah. 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 I feel like Bruin was very clear in that right. regard. And everyone's oh, just yeah. like, whatever. Yeah. In New York, we don't have to follow the law. And I feel like this might be a little bit controversial to say, but I, I say it anyways. Uh -oh. Is that This just reminds me of like how Southern states responded to like Brown v. Board. They were like, mm -hmm. what? Integration? Right. Yeah. Like, right. we yes. don't do that down here. Right. Like, right. Who cares what the Supreme Court says? Yeah. yeah. And that's literally exactly what New York is doing. And again, people are being harmed. And I feel like that really calls into question, like, the legitimacy of the system, right? Why mm -hmm. do some people have to follow the rules and not others? Why do yes. some people get punished for not following the rules? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there people on Rikers right now accused of this kind of? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There are people yeah. being sentenced three and a half, five, seven, life, like I said, you can get life on these kinds of cases depending on your record mm -hmm. right now. 
Mm-hmm. And it's horrifying. Yeah. There's probably somebody getting bail yeah. set right now as we speak. Oh, as we speak. Yeah. 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 I'd just like to piggyback on Amy's point there that of comparing this to Brown versus Board of Education. And, you know, for the liberals out there, you know, that will put Black Square on their Instagram <laughs> and think that, you know, we're over here being too radical and giving the Republicans a peg to hang their hat on is we can't just throw words out there and not like actually wrestle with the meaning. Right. We've been saying systemic racism definitely since, you know, the summer of 2020, but, you know, probably since the first iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement. And we give that diagnosis of systemic racism. And yet the only analysis we want to do is against the Republican side of the equation. And come to find out, you know, like in very liberal New York, we deal with a lot of systemic racism too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? As somebody from Austin. Yeah. Blue mm-hmm. paradise of Texas. Right. Yeah. 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 So Relating very hard. <laughs> be complete and holistic in your analysis, right? You know, a, a lot of times these ideas get exchanged, you know, and a lot of times we're talking about uh, the same people. And the majority of the times, the people that have power over our community is not the people from the community. So please just be a little bit more honest with yourself yeah. if you're out there listening. I think that was the big thing for us is at least we felt that we were just being consistent, yeah. right? Like we we make the same arguments regardless of who our clients are because we're public mm-hmm. defenders. We don't get to take the perfect client. We represent right. everybody. And all mm-hmm. we're saying is that this is what the Constitution says. Be consistent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had the thought, you know, you're not representing an individual client when you're writing this brief. You know, as public defenders, yes, you have a caseload of a lot of clients, but on each case, you are representing the stated interests of your individual client either way. How did y'all think about this kind of relationship between in the courtroom advocating for individual clients one at a time, their stated interests versus this more sort of holistic approach, you're not representing an individual client specifically. You're sort of advocating on more of like a community level. What are your thoughts about that? I think we're saying the same thing, mm-hmm. just in a different room. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. With no specific client in mind in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, the brief is filed because it's something we would file in every single one of our gun cases, right? It is improper in every single one of those cases. And it's just, instead of arguing it in the trial court, we're Mm. arguing it in front of the Supreme Court. Right. right? It's a different audience, but you're bringing the same advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the exact same advocacy. We're saying that this is unconstitutional, right? It's infringing on our clients' rights um, in the same way that we make those same constitutional arguments um, in the trial court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like as public defenders, our job is to right. apply federal law. And I think if there's a moment where we can help shape that law um, in a way that helps our clients, that it's our duty and our obligation to do that. I also think for us, like we're holistic public defenders. <laughs> so we have entire practices that represent people in various aspects of their lives because we recognize that the criminal legal system is not the only way that people are harmed. And that if they pick up a gun case, they may lose their house, they may lose their kids, they may lose their immigration status. And so we have other practice areas in our office designated to supporting people through all of these different obstacles. We have an impact practice. We have a policy advocacy practice. And so this is absolutely our bread and butter. And even if it wasn't, again, if we can help our clients, I think that's our obligation. What I thought of when you asked that question is 
what should the role of a public defender be? Yeah. Should it be the role to represent the individual and the individual only? Or is it the role to represent the movement? And I understand that debate, but I do think that sometimes that gets overblown and sometimes to our detriment, our being the communities. And we all know that we have ethical obligations to only take an action that's advancing a client's interest. We can't, you know, for the movement, tank a case. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the reality is that in my experience, that there's much more of a synthesis between those two goals than a lot of people tend to lead on, right? Yeah. I think every client that I told about the brief and what we're trying to do, right? Nobody's like, wait, how dare you do that? <laughs> you know, everyone's like, let's go. <laughs> yeah, can, wait, can you include my story in there? <laughs> nah, your case is still open, my bad. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we should, as public defenders, if you really do want to represent the community, I do think that you need to take a movement approach. At least ask yourself, is there a movement approach to be had in this individual case? And talk to your client about what potentially that means and the risk, the rewards. And I think we struck the perfect delicate balance of protecting individual interests and moving what we saw as a community interest as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else y'all would like to say? There has been a lot of public discussion about this. And when I was organizing this, I really wanted to give y'all a platform to explain the position, talk about real clients, right? Real impact. And so the floor is yours. If there's any other sort of thing that you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to, please. Yeah. I think I'll save two points, maybe three. But um, <laughs> first is just read the brief. I think our yeah. clients' stories speak for themselves. And I feel like most people, if they're acting in good faith, when they read our brief and they hear pretty much directly from our clients, they understand why we supported them and why we took this path. I'll also just say, I feel like a lot of people call themselves abolitionists, progressives, whatever, because it's sexy. And it's like, again, this is not the hardest battle that you have to fight as an abolitionist, right? If you call yourself an abolitionist or a leftist, then I don't see how you could not be on the same page as us and be supporting us in what we're trying to do here. Right. Chris, you looked like you were wanting to jump in. I did want to plug in Tracy McCarter's case. That's an open case in Manhattan. I heard of this through an organization called Survived and Punished. They tend to lift voices of people that survived a particular act of violence and as a result are being punished by the system. And, you know, I think it's a really good group that should be included in the conversation because I think oftentimes they say it's like, oh, wait, abolitionist what you just want to open up the jails and let all the murderers and everyone walk yeah. free like yeah. what if that was your sister that was at the face of, well the people that organized with survived and punished are the people <laughs> that you know these anti-abolitionists are, are talking about right and i do think it's important to elevate those voices and it's important not to run from the difficult conversation no we're not pro-violence <laughs> there is a world if we're brave enough to imagine where we can't think of safety without ruining an entire community, right? Yeah. That, that is possible. Yeah. And yes, we can have love and care for uh, the most vulnerable in our society and still dream of a world without prisons. And the second thing I wanted to mention, always my public service announcement I plug, Michael could actually do it too. Always keep your mouth shut when the cop asks you a <laughs> yeah. question. Yes. You just say, I want a lawyer and that's it. Never try to talk your way out of an arrest, period, point yeah. blank. Sorry, yeah. say it again, because I feel like I was laughing in a very good Great. way. I want it clear and crystal. Say it again. Say it again. <laughs> Something that's very important to me in my job, and I try to get this message out as much as I possibly can. If a cop 
uh, especially in New York, tries to talk to you, ask you questions, even ask you how's your day going, your answer should be one thing and one thing only. And that is, I want a lawyer. Period, and nothing blank. else. Nothing else. That's it. Never try to talk your way out of an arrest. Trust me, that makes our jobs and your life much more difficult than it has to be. Yeah. yeah. I would say I would encourage everyone to be creative. I think one of the biggest reasons why it has been difficult to move anything forward is this status quo bias or this idea that anything that is different than what we're doing today has to somehow get back to the way things were. I mean, I think we need to start by just thinking outside of the box, destroy the framework that we normally think of things. Because if we look to basically any, air quote, progressive idea that has come out in the criminal punishment system, it always leads back to incarceration, Yeah, right? That's right. Um, so drug courts lead back to incarceration, mm-hmm. right? Any sort of programming or anything like that will likely have either a criminal record or some level of incarceration hanging over that person's head. Right, the threat of incarceration, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that in order to actually take a step forward, we need to be willing to just ignore everything we've done up to this point because it clearly has not worked, right? We have been trying to incarcerate ourselves out of problems for decades, and we have not. And I think that means that we need to try a completely different approach. And I want people to just not be so scared because playing scared is what got us here in the first place. Right. It's an honor to have you at the table. I'm really glad we got to have this conversation. Thanks for all the work you do. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all the work you do. Amy Carlisle, Christopher Smith, and Michael Thomas are attorneys with the Bronx Defenders. To learn more about their work, you can visit bronxdefenders.org. If you'd like to read their amicus brief in Nyserpa v. Bruin, there's a link in the show notes of this episode. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Merlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. love like seeing behind the curtains of yeah, podcasting. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> we sound real good don't we yeah <laughs> it's wild how they make it and everything sounds so perfect yeah, right? just, yeah. yeah so it's nice yeah. to see I wish our closings could be like this right can I do have a do over <laughs> right. yeah. I do I have like picked up the habit like in front of judges like I'll say something and then I just like it's like mental reset and then I just like go again (laughs) as if it could be edited out you know like Rachel's right behind me (laughs) 